So uh, it's, a, it's a big, big deal. Okay, everybody good? All right, if you have your Bibles, please grab them and please turn with me to Genesis chapter 33. Genesis chapter 33. Really quick, I know I just prayed. I'm just going to pray again. Uh, God, uh, as I share your word tonight, I pray that you would fill me with your spirit. I don't want to say anything that's not of you. And I just pray that this message uh, would glorify you, uh, would be helpful to everyone who is here, and that our lives would be changed because of it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So Genesis 33, as you're turning there, a couple of questions I want to ask, and you do not need to raise your hand. But has anyone here ever experienced a family conflict that got really tough? You don't have to raise your hand. Has anyone here experienced family conflict? Has anyone here ever had a moment where they looked into the future and they experienced fear and uncertainty about a threat that was coming and they did not know what to do? Has anyone here ever been called by God to do something and you didn't know if God was going to come through and you were very afraid and perhaps you felt like, even though I've been called by God to do this, I kind of need to take control of the situation myself instead of trusting God. Does anyone relate to that? Okay. So if you relate to that, uh, you're going to relate to Genesis 33. And I'm going to give us a quick recap. Maybe you're new, uh, and we've been studying through the book of Genesis all year. But in Genesis, we're really studying about God's faithfulness through one family, the family of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And it's all about God uh, fulfilling his promises in that family and ultimately the whole world being blessed through Abraham and through his descendants. So we've studied about Abraham, we've studied about Isaac, and then we've studied, and now we're in the story of uh, Isaac's two sons, uh, which are, anybody know? Esau and Jacob, yes. Now, here's what you got to know about Esau and Jacob. They have a conflict that really has defined much of Jacob's life. Jacob, uh, if you're someone that is like a glass half full, optimistic, merciful person, you would maybe say Jacob is a schemer and he's a hustler. If you're someone that's more black and white, you would say he is a deceiver, a liar, and a rotten scoundrel, okay? So Jacob, he is someone that uh, he deceived Esau and he actually stole Esau's birthright, his first, uh, his first uh, like his right as the firstborn son. And then because of that, Esau got incredibly angry and Jacob had to run away to his uncle's house, which was incredibly far away. He was there for 20 years. And even though he was a schemer and a deceiver, God had a special hand of blessing on Jacob's life. And God continues to pour out his faithfulness to Jacob. We'll talk about that uh, at the end of our message about God's faithfulness, even when we are faithless. But at the end of this time, uh, God gives a command to Jacob. And we're going to see it up on the screen here. And it's this Genesis 31 verse 3. It says, Then the Lord said to Jacob, Go back to the land of your fathers and to your relatives, and I will be with you. Now, while Jacob was with his uncle uh, over 300 miles north of uh, the land of his fathers, um, some, some great things happened in his life. He inherited an incredible amount of wealth. Um, he married uh, two women, which that is uh, just wild, and that's another sermon for another time. Dave Barnes will explain it later. 
But, and he had 12 children. And actually more, 12 sons and, and, and other daughters as well. And so, man, Jacob has been incredibly blessed. And so now he left and ran away 20 years ago as one person. And now God has commanded him to return as an entire wealthy sort of like group of people who are, who are now traveling down. And he gets almost to where God had commanded him to go. And last week, if you were here, we discovered that he has this uh, fascinating encounter where Jacob actually wrestles with God, and he wrestles with God all night. And while uh, he is there, and while he is wrestling with God, God actually changes his name. This was very significant because at that time, your name was tied to your identity. Now, Jacob meant heel catcher. It meant deceiver. It meant schemer. But God changed his name to, anyone know? Israel. You guys remember from last week. Good job, Dave. You did a great job at teaching them. <laughs> and Israel means the one who strives with God or the one who wrestles with God. Now, I just want to put a map up on the screen here. And I kind of tried to include a lot of the surrounding area. So that top uh, little point there, the yellow point, that is where he was at with his uncle Laban. And then he travels down to uh, this place just outside of the nation of Israel, uh, this, this, uh, this place right next to the river, and this is where he wrestles with God. And so this is where we're going to pick up the story, Genesis 33, verse 1. Hopefully you've turned there by now, and we're going to dive in. But we see this, and we say, uh, Jacob, Genesis 33, 1, it says this, Jacob looked up, and there was Esau coming with 400 men. So he divided the children among Leah, Rachel, and his two female servants. He put the female servants and their children in front, Leah and her children next, and Rachel and Joseph in the rear. Now, let's talk about this for a second. First off, this moment is kind of what uh, Jacob's whole life has kind of been building toward. Because all the time that Jacob has been with his uncle, he has known in the back of his mind, my brother hates me because I basically stole his inheritance. And, and so when God commanded him to go back, it wasn't like he was worried about going back for any other reason except I got a brother who is a hunter, who is a, a man that is like a powerful warrior, and, and he wants me dead last time I heard. And so he's been traveling back and he's had to trust God, uh, which he does imperfectly, but now here's this moment where he actually sees Esau coming. Now, if you are Jacob and you see Esau with 400 men, like you're thinking to yourself, we don't need 400 men if, if what we're trying to do is make peace here. Like you bring 400 men if you're trying to fight a battle. And so Jacob, he does something interesting. He uh, sets up his camp and he puts uh, these two servants and their children first. He puts Leah, which is his least favorite of the two wives. Again, Pastor Dave of Barnes will explain that at another time. And then at the back of the pack, he puts Rachel and uh, his, his favorite son, Joseph. Now, uh, we see something really interesting here. Uh, later on in Genesis, we are going to discover the story of Joseph. And if you are not familiar, uh, maybe you've heard of Joseph and the amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. You guys are tracking with me on this. And so uh, there's actually a verse on the screen. I want you to look at it. It's Genesis 37.3. This is just a few chapters later in the story. And it says, now Israel, remember that's Jacob, loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him in his old age and he made an ornate robe for him. So here's what we see. This is kind of the most famous example of Jacob's 
favoritism towards Joseph, but I would say that what we just read in Genesis 33, it's much less known, but it's like way worse, right? Because like, uh, it's one thing to give your favorite kid like a nicer jacket than the other kids, but it's another thing to be like, well, if the army attacks, you guys need to die first. <laughs> and that's literally what he's doing. Now, I, I, wanna, I don't want to camp out too long here, but I do want to talk about this, especially for our parents, for our grandparents, step-parents in the room. Um, choosing favorites with our kids, um, here's what's ironic, it's actually going to ensure equality, and the reason is because everyone's going to get hurt. And I think that's a really interesting thing to think about. If you continue to study the story with us, you'll see Jacob gets hurt, Joseph gets hurt, all his other brothers get hurt. Now, God does a powerful work of redemption in that, and God works through that, but we got to be careful of that. And here's what I have discovered, and I don't feel like I honestly have been a parent long enough to give a lot of parenting advice, so I just want to give that as a caveat. But what I have discovered is um, that kids are, are different. They need different communication styles. They need different uh, ways to connect. They need different discipline methods. And so I don't think having favorites equals treating everyone exactly the same all the time, but our children and our grandchildren must know, and our, and our stepchildren must know that we love them equally. We are for them equally. And they must know that our heart is, is for their best. We don't want to choose favorites. We got to be very careful about that. And, and I would encourage you, if you feel that you have maybe made the mistake that Jacob made, you have exhibited favoritism, your children maybe have seen that. I mean, it's not too late to apologize, to change, to, to actually move uh, in, in a direction towards uh, making the right choices with that. Okay, let's keep reading verse three, and it says this. It says, Jacob himself went on ahead. Now, that's a good thing he did. At least he wasn't like, Leah, get out there, all right? See, test the waters for me. <laughs> Jacob himself went on ahead and bowed down to the ground seven times as he approached his brother. Now, this is the moment in the story where it's like, everyone's like, what's going to happen? Is Esau going to command the 400 men to attack? What's happening? It's that like most tense moment in the movie. And here's what we read, verse 4. It says, But Esau ran to Jacob and embraced him and threw his arms around his neck and kissed him. And they wept. Now, we don't quite know what caused Esau to change his heart, but clearly these 21 years softened Esau's heart. And there is a moment of reconciliation. It's actually a really beautiful moment that you can picture it just in your mind, seeing these brothers who left on terrible terms, made terrible threats to each other, and now they are reconciled together. Verse 5, it says, Then Esau looked up and saw the women and children, and he said, Who are these with you? Jacob answered, They are the children God has graciously given your servant. Then the female servants and their children approached and bowed down. Next, Leah and her children bowed down. And last of all, Joseph and Rachel, they bowed down too. Esau asked, what are the meaning of all these flocks and herds that I met? Now, you guys remember, and uh, Pastor Barnes talked about this last week, that uh, in preparation for this moment, Jacob had uh, taken part of his wealth, 
um, his cows and his uh, sheep and goats and all of these different animals. And he had sent them ahead kind of as like a present to say like, hey, like I hope we're cool. Um, Gentlemen who are husbands in the room, if you like forget your wife's birthday, you know it's like there's got to be flowers going ahead of me before I, she needs to see the flowers before she sees me. Come on. In the same way, Jacob is like, hey, what gift says I'm so sorry for stealing your inheritance and ruining your life more than some cows? And so he sends these cows ahead. And now Esau is like, what's the meaning of all these? And Jacob's like, verse 8, he says, to find favor in your eyes, my Lord. In other words, like, I didn't want you to kill me with your 400 men because I stole your birthright and ruined your life. Verse 9, but Esau said, I already have plenty, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. Verse 10, no, please, said Jacob. If I have found favor in your eyes, accept this gift from me. For to see your face is like seeing the face of God. Now that you have received me favorably. Now remember, Jacob had actually just kind of seen the face of God. He had wrestled with God all night. And so when he says to see your face is like seeing the face of God, what he is saying is, man, God promised that he was going to be with me. God promised that he was going to provide for me. And now I'm not seeing your sword. I'm seeing your face. And so I've seen that God is with me. Verse 11, please accept the present that was brought to you for God has been gracious to me and I have all I need. And Jacob, and because Jacob insisted, Esau accepted it. Now, I want to take a moment and I want to talk about something that uh, as I was praying about what I I believe God wants to share with us and what uh, we need to study tonight from this passage, um, I want to share something based on this conversation and really based on uh, the characters of Jacob and Esau because they're these two brothers, but they are radically different people. And so uh, if you're taking notes, you can write this down. I want you to write this down, that as followers of Jesus... Uh, we are called to be both hungry and grateful. As followers of Jesus, we're called to be both hungry and grateful. Now, on the surface, uh, these two concepts, being hungry, in other words, like, I want more, I desire more, and grateful, in other words, I'm content with what I have, they kind of seem to be opposites, right? But uh, what we must realize is that in uh, our Christian faith, Uh, sometimes there's such a thing as a paradox. In other words, a paradox is something that it seems like both things are opposite, but they're actually both true. And and so this is one of those things where God actually wants us to be hungry, but he also wants us to be grateful. And I'm going to explain what I mean by that. When I look at the story of Jacob, I think we could say Jacob is a hungry character. In other words, Jacob is someone that dreams big dreams. Jacob is someone, when he sees a situation, he's like, I want to get everything I possibly can out of that situation. He is a schemer. He is like, I remember what he did with Laban. He was like, he tricked Laban and he got all, he figured out a way to like give Laban all the terrible sheep and all the terrible goats. And he got all the good goats and the good sheep, which was a big deal back then. So Jacob is a hungry character, but I would say Jacob is not a very grateful character. He does not trust God. His confidence in God is very low, and he is constantly trying to manipulate and control the situations to make sure that he gets what he wants. 
even in this situation, God had promised to be with him, and yet here he is, he's splitting up the camps, he's putting kids in front of other kids, he's sending uh, cows and donkeys and sheep ahead, and he's trying to manipulate the situation. And so Jacob, he is hungry, but he is not grateful. But what I see is that Esau is, is grateful, but he is not hungry. And here's what I would say by that. that. That Esau is a pretty content person when it comes to physical things. But he is actually not very aware when it comes to spiritual things. If you think about Esau's character, Esau immediately, the first action that we see from him is that he sells his birthright to Jacob for a bowl of beans. In other words, like, I would rather have some temporary food right now than I would partake in the spiritual promises that God has made to my family. Uh, we, next, we read with Esau that he also marries these two women, and we read that they made life bitter for his parents. And then even in this story, uh, Jacob offers him this gift. Jacob offers him these cows and these sheep, and what he says is, he says, I have enough. So, so Esau is almost this apathetic character. And so I was thinking about this, and I kind of want to take a little bit of a moment, and I want us to meditate on this truth for a second, because I, I, I think it's really important for us as Christians to have this understanding. And as we go through this over the next couple of minutes, I think you're gonna, it's going to make sense why I feel like this is so important. Now, uh, I know that there is a lot of engineers at our church, a lot of uh, computer scientists, and so I think you're going to like this, but I have made a matrix quadrant diagram for us to look at tonight, okay? So we're going to put it on the screen here, and uh, what we see on the screen is that on the left side, we have hunger. In other words, this is like, man, I have a desire for the things of God. I have a desire to see God move. And on the right side, we have gratitude. We have, you know what? I'm happy. I'm content, and so uh, here's what we're going to look at first is we're going to see Jacob, and Jacob is someone that he has a high degree of hunger, but he has a low degree of gratitude. And, and here's what I believe that we see through this is that Jacob is someone who is anxious, who is controlling, who has angst in his life. He's constantly panicking and trying to figure out what's happening. I got to control the situation. Now, how does this apply to us today? Well, I believe that there are people in this room that they have a desire to see God do great things in their life. They have a spiritual gift that God has given them, and they want to use that spiritual gift for the kingdom. Or maybe even you look out at the world and you see uh, the, the world and you see something going on that's not right, and you're like, oh man, I, I want to do something to fix that. But with that, Oftentimes what happens is when people have a hunger to see God move, they also feel like they have to take control of the situation themselves, and they feel like they have to just go out and control, and they have to manipulate, and they have to, to just hustle on their own, and they forget to trust God. And so what happens in their lives? They become unhappy. They're always discontent. They're always looking for the, the next thing. They're always feeling like, man, I'll just find fulfillment and I'll find satisfaction and I'll find purpose just around the corner. And so, so man, they're, they're hungry, but, but they're not grateful. And I'll be honest, uh, I would say that I can have uh, this tendency. 
I can be somebody that has a lot of vision, that has a lot of passion, that has a lot of like, oh man, I just want to see God do great things. But my mind can constantly be racing towards what's next. And I can forget, God, what are you doing right in front of me right now? And I can forget to be content because of this. Now, what's next is we see Esau. And Esau is going to be on the screen. And we see that Esau is apathetic. That he is worldly and that he has a very low spiritual desire. Uh, possibly, uh, for, for t- today, an example of this would be people who would say things like, you know, like, I'm here in church because, you know, I don't necessarily have anything great better to do on a Wednesday night. My kids like it. My spouse likes it. But it, it just doesn't do anything for me. Um, may- maybe if, if you were honest, you're, like, more thinking, like, about, golf or thinking about fishing or thinking about a hobby or thinking about work. And it's like, you know, this, this is just not for me. Like, I'm glad it's good for other people. I'm glad people like raising their hands in worship. Eh, it's just not for me. But, but and maybe for, for you if, you, if you do sense in your life, like, yeah, Brian is kind of speaking to me, the, the whole Bible thing, the whole Christian thing, the whole God thing, eh, I, I don't, I don't, like, I, I appreciate it. I respect it. I, I, don't, I don't, I just don't care for myself. Maybe you're thinking like, that's fine. Like, I'm in a good place for that. But uh, if I can just be kind and, and honest at the same time, Esau, he, he was a part of a family that had been given radical and amazing promises of God. And Esau decided, I am not interested in partaking in those. I'm good. I have enough. And for you and for me, we have to realize this, that as followers of Jesus, if you are a follower of Jesus, uh, you have been invited to some pretty incredible things as well. Uh, The the Bible says that we have been given precious and very great promises in our relationship with God that we have the opportunity to partake in. And, And so often those who are not interested in spiritual things, they are actually, uh, playing a losing game. And in the end, you are going to miss out on what God has for you. There's a fascinating story of an ambassador named Joseph Kennedy, and he was a United States ambassador during World or before World War II. Now, the United States before World War II, uh, we had adopted a strategy called splendid isolationism. And basically the concept of splendid isolationism was, listen, Europe, uh, Asia, Japan, they can fight whatever war they want. We already did a world war. We don't want to be involved in another one. And so we're just going to stay over here. We have a nice Atlantic Ocean and Pacific Ocean that will prevent us from really getting involved. They can deal with what they want to do. We're good. Now, this ambassador, Joseph Kennedy, he went to Britain, and as he began to study and as he began to to discern what was going on, here's what he said. He said, America, alone and jealous in a hostile world, would find that the effort and cost of maintaining this isolationism would be such as to bring about the destruction of all those values which the isolationist policy had been designed to preserve. And so what he's saying is, if your policy is sit on the sidelines and do nothing and just kind of like let life pass you by, then whatever you're trying to preserve is actually going to get destroyed by your passivity. And in the same way, I think it's the same spiritually. 
that that God has offered some incredible promises to you and God extends an opportunity, not for a perfect life, not for an easy life, but for a life seeking him. And and so my prayer to you is if you are in a place right now where you sense, man, I, I have a low spiritual hunger. I don't really care about the things of God, that tonight your prayer would be, man, I want to change that. Now, there's another person, and notice here, uh, we're going to talk about a, a great example in just a moment, but I want to highlight one other biblical example. Uh, I put up the character Elijah for someone who is uh, low hunger and low gratitude. And, and here's what I mean by that. There's a moment in Elijah's life, and Elijah was an incredibly powerful prophet of God. He saw God do these incredible things. But he had a moment in his life where he had accomplished great things for God, But a threat came to him, and he grew greatly afraid. He ran away, and really, I would say, he kind of burnt out, experienced a ton of uh, depression, no motivation, and he just had a very, very dark moment in his life. And so maybe that's where you are right now. Uh, Elijah actually, in this moment, he ran away from his calling. He ran away from everything, and he ended up, in this cave that was a 40 days journey away from anything else. Maybe you're, you're in that cave right now. And you're like, Brian, like, I, I used to be on fire for God, or I used to be passionate about the things of God, but I'm just in a very low place. I'm in a very dark place. And what I believe is that all of us at some point or another are, are going to end up in the cave. That, that's what life is like. But I I just want to encourage you with this, and we could do a whole teaching on Elijah in the cave. It's a a beautiful chapter. If you want to read it, you can read 1 Kings 19. But but here's just what I want to encourage you with, that while Elijah was in the cave, he was discouraged, he was burnt out, he was in the darkest moment of his life. God met him in that cave, and God showed up to him. And God spoke to him in a still, small voice, And he told him he wasn't alone. He told him that he still had a calling. And he told him that he was going to be with him. And so I just want to encourage you in this moment. And I I wish I could do a whole teaching on it. But if you're in the cave right now, just know this. God loves you. And just like God showed up to Elijah, he's showing up in your life. He's telling you you're not alone. He's telling you he still has a purpose for you. And he's going to be with you. I just want to encourage you with that. Now, Here's a great example of the Bible, someone who has both hunger and gratitude. And I would say there's lots of good characters. Jesus is a good character, but the Apostle Paul is someone. And when we think about the Apostle Paul, we think about someone that is incredibly zealous. Paul said this. He said, I- I'm the, like one of the most zealous people I know. Before he was a Christian, he was out persecuting Christians. He was like, passionate about everything that he did. And then when God saved him, that zeal started being used for God's glory. And so he's planting churches. He is preaching the gospel. He is experiencing persecution, but he doesn't care because he's continuing to go. He has this incredible zeal, and he just wants to see God's name be proclaimed all over the world. In fact, uh, Paul is so zealous for the gospel that he's like, I need to preach it to Every ruler, I need to preach it to, uh, to, to Caesar himself. Like He's like, who's the most important person in the world? i got to go preach the gospel to them. But we also see in Paul's life that Paul is incredibly grateful. 
Even this weekend as we started Philippians, we learned Paul is always remembering the people and thanking them in his prayers. Paul was conscious of the fact that God was moving in his life. Remember over and over again, he would say that, you know, he's the chief of sinners, but God has saved me. He remembered salvation. He remembered the gifts of the Holy Spirit. He remembered everything that God had done in his life. So Paul had this passion, but he also had this deep sense of gratitude for God. I love this verse from uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. It says this, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace towards me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than any of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. So what Paul is saying is, Paul's like, I'm hungry. I want to see God do great things in my life. I'm passionate about it, but I also acknowledge it's not me. It's the grace of God. It's, it's the hunger to see God move, and it's gratitude that, of what God has done and what God will do. So we've talked about this. We've kind of done a deep dive of it. And, and I just want to encourage us that I believe that is what God wants for us. That there are many of us here who are in ministry. And, and I believe that God wants us to have a hunger. He doesn't want us to be apathetic. He, he wants us to... to take the next hill, and he wants us to say, God, what do you have for me next? I want to see your, your gospel move forward, but I believe he also doesn't want us to miss the fact that he is moving and he's working right here and right now in our lives, in our church. I, I think this applies to parenting. I, I know that there are uh, all of us who have parents or kids or stepkids or grandkids it can be easy for us to look at them and to be like, oh, man, I just I hope that they don't, don't turn out weird. And I hope that they are like normal members of society. And I hope that these personality quirks that they have right now, they grow out of and, you know, all those things. But, but man, may we also recognize uh, the, the blessing of the fact that we God is moving in their lives, of the fact that they get to come to a church where they're taught the word of God, of the fact that God loves them, that may we recognize the, the good things that we see in them, as well as hopefully uh, encouraging them towards uh, changing and developing and, and all that as well. I think it's the same thing with our marriage. It applies to our marriage. I hope everybody here who is married, uh, you desire for a better marriage. And I hope that if you have a great marriage, you still say, I want to have a better marriage. I want to I grow. I want to learn how to serve my spouse better. I want to learn how to pray for my spouse better. I want to learn how to see my spouse flourish more. I hope you're hungry. I hope you have a desire for that. But, but don't forget to be grateful for the gift that God has given you in that other person as well. And in fact, I would say this, that, that if you are, are not grateful then you're not going to have a better marriage. It's not going to grow because you're going to have a critical spirit and you're going to have a complaining spirit and you're going to have a spirit that says, man, I'm just not happy with you. Man, man, if we're grateful and we're thankful for what God has done, that's how growth will happen. Now, I want to ask a question and I want you to think about this for just a moment. Do I need to grow in gratitude? Do I need to grow in hunger or do I need to grow in both? That's kind of the reflection question for us tonight. And I just want to talk for a moment as maybe you're writing this down as you're thinking about that. Do I need to grow in gratitude? Do I need to grow in hunger? Or do I need to grow in both? Maybe even this week in your quiet time, you could 
think about that and ask God that. But I want to speak for just a moment. How do we grow in gratitude? How do we grow in hunger? And then we'll wrap up our teaching for tonight. But here's how we grow in gratitude. On the screen, there is one of my favorite verses, and it is from Psalm chapter 16. And it says this, Lord, you alone are my portion and my cup. You make my lot secure. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Surely I have a delightful inheritance. Now, what this verse says is that because I have a relationship with God, because I get a chance to know my Father, to know His salvation, to know the the blessings that He brings me, then I can say that I have been truly blessed by God. Think about what this says. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. This is talking about using an illustration of property. He's saying, spiritually speaking, I live in good land. I, I love my house. I love my land, spiritually speaking. Now, as I look out over this room, I, I see people who I know what you're going through a little bit. And I know you're going through, people are going through hard times. I, I look out and I see people and I can think to myself, man, I, I have talked to you and I know some of the struggles you're going through. I know some of the prayers you're praying. I know some of the concerns you have. I know what's happened in the past year. Not everybody, but some. And, and so I, I recognize this doesn't mean life is perfect. This doesn't mean there isn't suffering and tragedy and hardship in life. But this does mean that we all, as followers of Jesus, can have a heart and a spirit to say, God is moving in my life. Jesus is good. Jesus has saved me. Jesus is bringing blessings into my life. I'm not pretending like the bad stuff isn't happening. I don't have my head in the sand like an ostrich that just hides when, when scary things happen. No, I'm, I'm recognizing life's tough. But, but I'm also saying That even when life is tough, God is good, and he's walking with me, and he's going to be with me. He is my portion. He is my cup, and because of that, I can say, I got good land. And and so I believe growing in gratitude is, is becoming better and better at recognizing the blessings God has given us. And one of the things, even with myself and uh, Katie and our boys, when we eat dinner together, I've started asking Isaiah, he's three years old, I'm, what, what are you thankful for today? I want him to start learning that. And sometimes he's like, I'm thankful for fans. And you know what? Like, that's awesome. We could be, like, God gave us some fans and it's hot in Florida, so praise the Lord for fans, you know? Come on, we'll take it. But, but, we got to understand and we got to recognize that everything that we have that is good is a gift from God. And so we want to practice gratitude. The, the, the way to learn and grat- grow in gratitude is practice it. Look for opportunities to be grateful for the people in your life, for the blessings of God. What has God given you? So how do you grow in gratitude? You practice it. You repeatedly develop a habit of looking for God's blessing in your life. Now, how do you grow in hunger? Well, I believe that this is something that must happen as a work of God. But I do believe that we can ask God for it. I believe that we can say, God, I I recognize in my heart that that I'm kind of hardened toward you right now. I I don't 
love you the way I once did. I've gotten distracted by other things. I've let the riches of this world, I've let the burdens of life cloud out my view of you. And I'm apathetic. And I think if we're honest with God and we pray and say, God, increase my spiritual hunger, I believe that he will. But, but here's what I will also say. That when it comes to the hunger of the hungering for the things of God, there are a couple practical things we can do. We can ask ourselves the question, are there things in our life that are dulling our spiritual appetite? And, and here's what I mean by that. If I were to bring four very expensive steaks home and I were to cook them perfectly and I were to get all the fixings and all the sides um, and I went to my son Isaiah who's three and my son Malachi who's one and I said, would you rather have this steak or would you rather have goldfish? He would, they would both pick the goldfish. And, and that's not because th- there is one that is 100% superior to the other. But when your appetite is for goldfish, then you don't actually desire the steak. And what I believe is that spiritually speaking, we can fill our appetite based on what we consume on our phones, based on what we fill our imagination with. We can fill our life with spiritual cotton candy that that tastes good in the moment but has no substance. And if our tongue and our, our, our spiritual appetite, our spiritual tongue, our spiritual appetite is, is addicted to spiritual cotton candy, it's not going to actually seem like the steak is good. And so we may have to remove some things from our life. And let me challenge you with this. If you really get to a place where you're like, man, I'm not hungry for the things of God, and I actually would like to be hungry for the things of God, I believe that actually fasting from a meal on a consistent basis and feeling the physical hunger and then replacing that with taking time to read the Bible and taking time to pray. Man, there is something about actually creating that environment in your body where you're like, man, I'm going to remove some some food and I'm going to experience some discomfort physically for a short time. And, And then while you're doing that, you're saying, God, I'm hungering for you. I'm hungering for you. And when that happens, I believe that there is a powerful thing that happens in our lives when we do that. So if you want to hunger for the things of God more, what are, what are you consuming that's not helping? And then taking some time to say, man, every so often I want to fast a meal. I want to fast for 24 hours in order to seek God more. Okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to wrap up this story, and I have a few verses left. So look with me at verse 12. Uh, Thanks for going with me there. I know we kind of took a deep dive on a concept. So we're going to wrap up uh, Genesis 33. And, and this is what it says. Then Esau said, let us be on our way. I will accompany you. But Jacob said to him, my Lord knows that the children are tender and that I must care for the ewes and the cows that are nursing their young. And if they're driven hard just one day, all the animals will die. So let my Lord go on ahead of his servant while I move slowly at the pace of the flocks and the livestock uh, before and the pace of the children until I come to my Lord in Seir. Then Esau said, let me leave some of my men with you. But why would you do that, Jacob asked. Let me find favor in the eyes of my Lord. So that day Esau started back his way to Seir or Mount Seir. Jacob, however, went to Succoth, where he built 
uh, for himself, a place for himself and made shelters for his livestock. That is why the place is called Succoth. Now, I want to put up a map really quick, and I want to just highlight a couple of things. Once, uh, do, we have a, do we have another map, guys? Yeah, there it is. Okay, so on the right there, Peniel, that is where Jacob wrestled with God, and that's really where the, the meeting is happening between Jacob and Esau. Now, down there at the very bottom, not even in the nation of Israel currently, is Mount Seir. This is where Esau and his family lived. Now, Esau is wanting Jacob to accompany him all, him all the way down there, and Jacob, continuing in his lying and deceiving ways, says, I got you, I'll go with you. But, but Jacob doesn't. As soon as Esau is uh, out of sight, he's like, listen, uh, Esau gave me a hug. We reconciled, but I don't trust him that much. We're going the other way. And so they go to a place called uh, Succoth, which is uh, also uh, very near Shechem. And that's where he ends up. As you can see in verse 18, it says this. After Jacob came from Padan Aram, he arrived safely in the city of Shechem in Canaan and camped within sight of the city. For a hundred pieces of silver... He bought from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem, the plot of ground where he pitched his tent. There he set up an altar and called it El Elohe Israel. Now, here's how we'll close. There's a couple of things that I want to just bring back from Jacob's story. And uh, first off, I want to bring up uh, a promise that Jacob made to God before he left. Remember, Jacob was on the run. He had deceived uh, his brother, and he's running away. And he makes a prayer to God in Genesis 28, and I believe we have it on the screen. Genesis 28, 20. Here's what it says. Jacob made a vow, and remember, this is, he's on the run. He doesn't know what's going to happen in his life, and he says this. If God will be with me and will watch over me on this journey I am taking, and will give me food to eat and clothes to wear so that I return safely to my father's household. Then the Lord will be my God. Now here's what's crazy. If you read the story, and we've been studying it, Jacob does a lot of shady things during this time. Jacob wasn't like, man, what a godly guy. Like, what a great example. But, but God was faithful to Jacob. And Jacob didn't just come back with food to eat and clothes to wear. Jacob came back with a family. Jacob came back with sons, with a legacy, with wealth. And Jacob said, if, if I can just make it back, then the Lord will be my God. Now, here's what's interesting. If you read the story, and, and Pastor Dave's been highlighting this, every time Jacob refers to God, he always says, he's the God of my father. He's the God of my grandfather. He never claims him as his God. Now, I want you to look back one more time at verse 20, the last verse. It says, there he set up an altar and called it El Elohe Israel. Now, that translated from the Hebrew means God is the God of Israel. Now remember, Jacob has just had his name changed. His name is no longer Jacob, his name is Israel. So for the first time, he's back in the land. He remembers the faithfulness of God. And he says, he's just not the God of my granddad. He's just not the God of my dad. He's my God now. And, and I want to ask a question to us as we close, and it's on the screen. Is he a God 
or is he my God? Because it's awesome, I think, for, for people who are here that don't yet know Jesus. And if you're here and you're like, man, I, I, I've been just trying to figure out what's going on here. I've had some crazy stuff happen in my life, and I'm, I'm trying to learn. I'm trying to grow. I'm, 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 I'm just interested, or I was raised in it, and I walked away, and now I'm coming back. Like, I'm, I'm just trying to learn. I'm trying to process. Man, if you're there, like, we're praising God that you're here. I believe God's working on your life. But I do want to encourage you with this. There has to be a moment where it's not just Calvary Chapel's God. It's not just my dad's God. It's not just my grandma's God when she read bedtime stories to me and prayed for me, but he's my God. That, that I recognize that he's been with me and he's walked with me. More importantly, I recognize that Jesus died on the cross for me to save me. God was faithful to Jacob when he was faithless. God is faithful to us when we are faithless because while we were still sinners, while we were enemies of God, Jesus died for us. And so may I just encourage you that God loves you. He has an incredible plan for you. He wants to see you grow in your walk with him. And if you're here tonight and you're like, man, he, he, he's a God. I believe that he exists. Don't just believe that God exists. Believe God. Take him as your God. Say, Jesus, I want you to be my Savior and my Lord. I want to live for you forever. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the story of Jacob and Esau. We thank you for everything that you taught us. God, please increase our spiritual hunger. Please help us to grow. Please help us to be grateful. And God, I pray that if there is anybody here that doesn't know you, may tonight they say it's not just some Jesus, he's my Jesus. God, I pray that, that we would take and acknowledge that you are our God. We love you, God. We thank you for all you're doing at our church. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. We love you guys so much. We'll see you this weekend. We'll see you at the baptism. God bless you. Have a great week.